Welcome to the Marcus Oldham College Ag Talk podcast. This series of podcasts focuses on the business management of Australian farms. G'day, my name is David Cornish. I am the director for the Centre for the Study of Agribusiness at Marcus Oldham College, an independent tertiary institution that has been producing the next generation of Australian farm managers for over 50 years. The focus of the podcast is to look at the question of what makes a farmer successful. Is it just luck or do good farmers make their own luck through hard work and utilising good business decision-making processes? I hope you enjoy the discussion. Dr. Ken Giller is Professor of Plant Production Systems at Vargington University. His research focuses on smallholder farming systems in sub-Saharan Africa, and in particular problems of soil fertility with emphasis on the temporal and spatial dynamics of resources within crop livestock farming system. He leads a number of initiatives such as N2 Africa, putting nitrogen fixation to work for smallholder farmers in Africa. He's also co-chair of the thematic Network 7 on Sustainable Agriculture and Food Systems of the Sustainable Development Solutions Network of the United Nations and a member of the Unilever Sustainable Sourcing Advisory Board. Ken joined Vargington University in 2001 after holding professorships at Y College, University of London and University of Zimbabwe. Welcome, Ken. Great. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, pleased to speak to you this morning for me, evening for you. So, so Ken, where do I find you today? Uh, I'm actually back in my office for one of the first times, I and mean, we're just moving back onto campus now. Uh, but I'm in uh, Wageningen. Uh, I call it uh, Wageningen University. We call it the university with the unpronounceable name, yeah. So it, it tends to be a bit problematic. Thank you. For but that. I live and work in, in I live and work in the Netherlands. But I think you'll understand from my accent that I'm a I'm a pom, definitely from the UK. Um, in the yeah, where I hail from. And so, so your your background, Ken, is obviously agronomy. Soil is 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 your passion in life. Well, I mean, I've had a checkered history, if you like. I, I was trained as a plant ecologist, working more in conservation, but then uh, I worked as a soil microbiologist, uh, looking at rhizobium with legumes, particularly nitrogen fixation has been my real passion. Yep. So aspects of, of uh, yeah, nitrogen fixation, soil science, soil fertility, those sorts of issues, and particularly with smallholder farmers in the tropics. So, so that, that's what I find interesting. You're involved in Africa. Why? And how'd that happen? Well, yeah, good question. <laughs> after, um, after my PhD, I started working actually in India, um, looking at nitrogen fixation in legumes. And then gradually I was, I, I was asked by more people to get involved in projects in Africa. And, and that eventually led to me moving and, and uh, to live in Africa. So I was never really interested in European agriculture because it just seemed to me that if you had a problem, you just, you know, threw a bigger machine or a, uh, a chemical at it. Whereas in Africa, you were really needing to use, if you like, the best of biology. So using more of a, a sort of an ecological approach to, um, to farming. And that fitted very well with my background, which was, was really thinking about ecological processes. So my work's really focused then very much at trying to use, if you like, the best of biology uh, within, within agricultural research. Great. So it's interesting because obviously from Australia's perspective, I know that Africa's got just as many climate or soil types and, and changes that we have, but I've always looked at Africa and think 
what the potential there is for, for agriculture must be huge. Well, sure. I mean, uh, I think climatically very, very much. I mean, obviously, it's uh, a bit like Australia. And if you think about, you know, Gondwana land and the fact that, that many, 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 many millions of years ago, you know, Australia left the African coast and, and, and headed off towards the Pacific. There are a lot of similarities, and particularly of Southern Africa, to for me, for Western Australia. If I'm, I'm driving around in Western Australia, sometimes I think, wow, you know, this looks like bits of, of, um, of South Africa. So some of the really poor sandy soils that you have in Western Australia would be very much the, to- the sort of really poor sandy soils that I'm used to seeing in, in Southern Africa in different parts. So very old soils, very depleted soils. And... The difference in Africa, of course, is that farmers don't have access to fertilizers uh, often to be able to invest in their soil fertility. So soils get run down really rather strongly. And I think that's important to contextualize that for what we're going to talk about. And the reason why I've got you on is I've seen your your paper and I've I've seen some YouTubes of you talking about regenerative farming. And I Regenerative farming, from my perspective, is a term that, I'll be honest, I do struggle with. But I wanted to use this podcast as probably work through what regenerative agriculture is about. And I I thought of all the things that I've read and and heard so far, I thought you gave a very objective critique of it. So, Ken, I thought maybe where we might start is, is, is where does this term actually come from? Well, I mean, thanks, Dave, very much for, for you know, for inviting me uh, to talk about this topic. Um, but maybe let's start off by just saying, well, I share your confusion. <laughs> and, and essentially, that's why we wrote the paper that you refer to. And I, I hope you'll be able to share that paper with your, your audience, because that'll uh, give them much more background as well. So where does the term come from? Maybe if I could just start by saying where I first encountered it, and that's I I work actually in a sort of advisory capacity for quite a number of of different uh, companies. Unilever is one of the biggest companies globally in terms of uh, the whole area of of food, but also cosmetics. I mean, so they, they produce a lot of what they call healthcare products. So, you know, oil palm would be a major uh, crop that they deal with and I sit on a, um, an advisory board with them which is actually there to hold their their processes and systems up to the light and to critique them if you like internally and we were sitting in a meeting of this advisory board and they started talking about regenerative agriculture I think it was 2019 so just only a couple of years ago and I'd never heard of it and I work <laughs> in agriculture so I was just totally confused what are you guys on about you know so then I thought, well, as an academic, of course, what I have to do is I have to find out. So we started looking into this and I was finding all sorts of stuff on the Internet. And, and um, really, that since 2016, this term has taken off. It's, it's really uh, uh, been embedded in so many different companies' uh, um, approaches to agriculture. But when we started doing the literature review, then we actually could find that it, it's, we could trace it back to the uh, early 1980s, to the Rodale Institute in the United States. And I'm not sure, are you, are you aware of the Rodale Institute? Yeah, I have heard of it, Ken, yeah. Yeah, they're quite, uh, quite uh, you know, they, I see a bit of their stuff coming across the internet. 
Yeah, so I mean, basically, though, they're, they're really the um, Rodale, and there are various generations of Rodales, that they were really instrumental, if you like, in, in the whole organic farming movement in the United States. And they have a research uh, station where they do quite interesting systems-based research, looking at, at the advantages and, and the constraints of organic farming. So although we're looking at this term being used by a whole range of different people, including many of the big companies, it's got its roots very firmly in the, in the organic movement in the United States. And there was quite some interest going back to um, this period in the early 1980s, where you'll see uh, actually a, a, a sort of a number of people uh, writing about regenerative agriculture. But then actually the term really uh, fell away, fell out of usage really until, yeah, like I say, 2015, 2016, when it really took off, um, in the, particularly in, in the social media, on the internet. And then more recently, really being picked up by uh, a huge number of companies worldwide. So, and there I mean, you know, Nestle, uh, Unilever, uh, PepsiCo, a whole range of, of companies. And, and that in itself I find fascinating because on one side you've got the corporates who have seemed to have latched onto this, and I, I know why they've done that. And, and, and again, having worked in marketing for, for some serious organisations, I, I get why they've got that. Then, But you've also got at the other side of spectrum, I suppose, the people who would, who would run a mile from the corporates um, using this term regenerative farming. Well, but that's absolutely right. And in a sense, this is one of the most confusing parts of the whole discussion. So going beyond, if you like, the, com the food companies I've just been talking about, and I mean, we can add some more there, you know, Kellogg's and yep. you know, uh, Danone and many more. There are also uh, Patagonia, you know, the clothing company, yep. and they're quite um, an interesting company, but they're really trying to promote uh, what they call regenerative organic agriculture. And of course, that's really all about cotton. Uh, as a, a, a basic uh, material for them. But again, we've got the World Wildlife Fund and the Nature Conservancy, so two of the biggest uh, conservant, uh, conservation organisations globally, and other sort of big international NGOs who also embracing this term of, of uh, regenerative agriculture. So it, it's, a, it's a really quite a strange mix, if you like, of, of different organisations who are all coming together around this this term it's it's got a huge amount of traction and again if you look on the internet you'll find uh, testimonials from a large number of farmers and particularly when i've seen it in from uh, your part of the world from australasia a lot of livestock farmers in australia and new zealand usually on quite large uh, large farms in terms of grazing areas who are really embracing these concepts of, of regenerative farming and, and really sort of personal testimonials of how they've changed their, changed their lives, changed their way of farming. Yeah, and, and I think I, I want to revisit that because I find that's an interesting dichotomy between personal, personal comments and what the science that I can find on it. But one of the, I, I suppose, where we need to start with then Ken is what is it what can you can you can you tell me what it is please okay so um just just before we get into the detail yeah yeah 
you know, if 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 I'd um, never seen the term, I'd, I'd still be quite happy to be honest, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Yep. But having now see the term being adopted so widely, I, gu- I guess my my stance on it all is well, okay, there's a huge amount of goodwill out there to, to do things better. And so let's try and, you know, engage with each other and see how we can give, if you like, yeah, what does that mean, doing things better? How can we give that some shape? Yep. So one of the dangers with all of these labels, if you like, different labels for farming, is that they they tend to set up dichotomies. And you mentioned dichotomies. So they tend to set up opposites. And they push people into corners where people start, you know, throwing stones at each other. And I think my first point here is that that doesn't really help anybody. So it's much better that we try and understand where people are coming from. And then we can think, well, you know, what are the best ways we can do things better? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. What does it mean? Well, I think a lot of where it's coming from has been a feeling, particularly then in the corporate world, um, that sustainability and sustainable intensification there's a sort of feeling well we've done that we need to move on now we need to do something better and I think that would that would uh, rhyme with what you've been saying Dave about about the marketing side yep so they want to portray themselves as really going a step further but then the I think the other big driver here is the zero carbon commitments that people are making and I was on a discussion with a number of different companies from the UK earlier this week, all around um, greenhouse gas emissions and, and how can we move to a, a zero carbon economy. And companies are making commitments at the very top that they're going to be zero carbon in their operations by 2030, it's very soon. And when they look at their operations, they find that somewhere around 60, 70, 90% for some companies of their carbon emissions are actually in in the production side. Yeah. So in the farming, yep. in the agricultural production of the commodities that they're then using or trading, selling in their products. So I think that's important to put down as a marker. Now, the other marker alongside that, and this is really where a lot of the, the World Wildlife Fund and, and the conservation organizations come in, there's also a big pressure around biodiversity and the need to do better for the planet in relation to biodiversity. So we're talking then about how do we move forward with farming, if you like, within what we'd call the, the planetary boundaries. Yeah. Yep. Now, so what is regenerative farming? I think for many people, it simply means we need to try and do better than just being sustainable. So we need to go one step further and try and uh, build back better, you know, these sort of ideas of what we do after after the pandemic and we get how do we get things going in a better way. And there's a lot of focus then in what people write about regenerative farming in two areas. One is in, in really an in soil and what people call soil health which is another rather nebulous term in some ways but we could sort soil fertility soil quality soil health yep and the other is really around biodiversity and that's really the idea of getting away from uh, repeated uh, single monoculture crops in the same soil year in year out yeah so getting more 
more diversity into farming as well. And I think those are the really the two areas that are addressed by most people in when we're talking about regenerative agriculture. But I suppose, and again, if you don't mind me sort of saying, well, uh, in my lifetime, in, in what I would call Australian conventional zero tillage uh, rotational cropping, the, the, I would tick all that, you know, most of who I would consider the leading farmers would tick all those boxes. They're, they're about building carbon. They're about rotating their so- as, uh, crops within their, within their farm to ensure that they're not getting monocultures um, and obviously using livestock in that where, the, where a mixed farming system makes sense. Sure. And, I mean, and don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to trip you up. But no, no. You, you, talked, you talked to it, though, about conventional zero-till systems. Yeah? Yeah. Yep. Now, many people who are promoting what they call conservation agriculture yeah, yep. would compare that with what they call conventional agriculture, and they would call conventional agriculture uh, using the moldboard plow, yeah, plowing. Okay. But then, yeah. when a when a, a technology gets adopted and is used much more frequently, then we start to think, oh, that's that's the conventional. How do we change from that? And and language becomes really important here because what we're tending to do again is we're using words like conventional agriculture, yeah. and agriculture comes in so many different forms. Yeah. You know, we're actually writing a paper at the moment about well, what is conventional agriculture because. It's basically sort of 99% of, of, of everything yep. and because it's usually just differentiated from organic agriculture on the other side. Yeah? Yes. Yep. And this idea of setting up dichotomies is very useful in, in discussion and debate because it puts people against each other in some ways, but it doesn't really help us move forward. Yeah? Ken, you've been, you've been following my Twitter feed, have you? Uh, I haven't actually, <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> maybe just, I should. <laughs> no. Probably not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you, you see that on social media. It, you're either for it or you're against it, and 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 none of the none of we should, won't meet in the middle, sort of thing. Yet, this is, I suppose, the frustrating bit for me, and I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I see so much overlapping with what people might consider, I suppose, regenerative agricultural practices as well as, for instance, what I do on my own farm um, with regards to rotational livestocks by um, building orga- soil organic matter in my, my soils, diversification, fencing off by, you know, all those type of things. But I would probably be classified by the other side, if I put it that way, as uh, a sustainable intensification type person. And so we sort of have this fight between you're using fertiliser and chemicals and I'm saying I might be, but I'm also building soil carbon and allowing more land to be put put aside for biodiversity reasons. But, you know, it's sort of like we, we're sort of trying to get to the same spot. We seem to disagree on how we're going to do that. Sure. So, Dave, let, let's maybe dive into it a bit more. Yeah. And again, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm afraid I'm not going to give you the definitive definition of regenerative agriculture because I don't really think there is one. No, that's fine. But when we, when we, in our review, what we tried to do then is, and we, we've got a, a, a table in the paper where we try and look at, well, what, what are people actually putting under this heading of, of regenerative agriculture? And we came up there with a, a set of, and this is based on other people's uh, work, earlier work as well. We come up with a set of, of, if you like, principles 
And the one you just mentioned of, of uh, reducing soil disturbance of minimum tillage is, is probably one that comes up most commonly. And then maintaining soil cover would be another one. Um, a lot about building soil carbon. Um, you mentioned fertilizers already. So trying to rely more on, on biological nutrient cycles. And then the other ones are more in then to management things like um, uh, plant diversity, getting more diverse systems and, and integrating livestock. So, and, and maybe that's not so appropriate for you in Australia. I'm, I, I'm not sure. But in Europe, we have very specialized farms where we have dairy farms and we have arable farms. And, and the only way of getting integration in terms of returning manure to the soil is to put it into tankers and ship it from an, a, a dairy farm to a, a livestock farm. Yeah? So, you know, we've, we've specialized to the extent that we've broken some of those basic nutrient cycles and a lot of actions now being taken to try and stitch that all back together and to think more about different forms of mixed farming again. That was very interesting. I was working with some uh, Germans uh, a couple of years ago who wanted to invest in agriculture in Australia, and I was trying to trying to get them to understand the concept of a mixed cropping system with with sheep, and and yeah. it was like they were sort of thinking like I was talking voodoo. Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, the, the work that's been done in Australia by CSIRO and other researchers looking at and, and together with with a, a lot of farmers looking at um, this idea of multipurpose uh, grazing systems where you're grazing off wheat and canola uh, until they're ready to bolt and go through to flowering and you can actually get much more efficient water uses usage and and, and also be taking off you know, a lot more in terms of, of the sheep grazing. I think some of those are the most innovative and, and uh, yeah, stunning, if you like, uh, advances in, in integration of crop uh, and livestock farming that I've, I've seen and things that I think we can really start to, to look at and replicate in other parts of the world. So I, I was talking about this set of principles, if you yes. like. Yeah. So we've got a whole set of principles, minimal till, building soil carbon, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when I look at those, I think, as you were saying earlier, Dave, that these are really things that we'd agree on as well. These are essentially they're good agricultural practice. Yeah. Yep. So where's where does the division come? I think that's the next question. And that's really where it gets a bit tricky, because what people put then in terms of the practices under some of these headings, that's where it, we really start to diverge. Some of the things are very sensible. So, we're, you know, um, conservation agriculture, zero till, controlled traffic, things like that. But then there's a lot pushing more towards things like permaculture, using composts, biochar, what this this whole idea of holistic uh, you know the alan savory holistic grazing yes. approach the teas essentially moving though into topics which i'd call fairly fringe you know even to the level of of compost tea yeah? so yes so using tea you know making extracts from composts and spraying them on and and so you you have a gradation of you know, very sensible, good agricultural practice. And then you have all of these things sort of thrown into the pot, which which start to make it all look a bit magical, yeah? Well, and I think the thing there is, you know, I don't care how you do it, but in my simple mind is that if I take product off my farm and sell sheep, sell wheat, sell whatever it is, 
that I'm taking nutrients off the farm. It's not a closed system. I, you know, I'm, I'm, therefore, surely, how do I find a way? And again, something like using legumes. I get it with clover and things like that. But you know, there's 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 other nutrients that I'm that I'm extracting for the farm. Surely, I need to bring that back back somehow. So this concept that I can just change my management system and somehow overcome that issue, I found I find confusing. Sure. Absolutely. And I think this is this is, if you like, why having, you know, done some reading, I started to feel extremely edgy about a lot of the discussion and debate about regenerative agriculture. So if we go on then to where I'd I'd really, you know, start to call the shots in terms of the critique that I have of the way people portray regenerative agriculture. It's this one really about starting points, yeah? And particularly for me, working in Africa, where I go onto farms, and I mean, until the pandemic, I was traveling nearly every month. Uh, We were working across 16 countries in Africa. We maintain that work through partners, but I can't travel much yet at the moment. And I'd be out in in, in really remote rural areas with very poor people on soils which are totally degraded and depleted. And, And... to get agriculture going, we need to use fertilizers. We need more inputs. All the work we've done on, on manure and rotation of, uh, of legume crops and things, our legumes can't grow because there's not enough phosphorus and potassium in the soil. Yep. And that means, you know, okay, let's use manures, but there's not enough animal manure to go around either. Yeah. Yep. So absolutely, your point about needing inputs to replace particularly the nutrients other than nitrogen is, a, is an absolute critical one. And, you know, we can do a lot with legumes. And I think, you know, in, in Australian agriculture, there's, I mean, particularly the Centre for Rhizobium Studies and, and the people working at Murdoch University in, in Western Australia have done some brilliant work on integrating Mediterranean legumes into, um, into wheat cropping systems and the like. But you can't do it without any inputs at all if you want to have productive, productive agriculture. Yep. Um, And even our organic farms tend to import nutrients from other farms because they're importing animal manures. So we we, absolutely, we don't have a closed cycle in agriculture. Agriculture was designed to produce uh, outputs. So we'll never have a completely closed nutrient cycle. So starting points, Ken, where where do we start? Or what are the starting points? I, I think my... The point I was trying to make, and I, I, I was talking about Africa, of course, mm. is that, that lots of, uh, even in Australia, you'll find very, very different uh, starting points because of the huge diversity of farms and farming systems. Some farmers might be a long way down this sort of road already. Others might be um, really, you know, starting in a journey. So I think that's uh, understanding the local context before we move to what the, the you know, and identifying, if you like, the issues and problems first before recommending solutions, I just think is is absolutely key, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I suppose, as you say, let's let's talk, one of the principles you talk about is, is minimum tillage. Now, minimum tillage in Australia requires a significant use of, 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 of chemicals uh, for it to be successful. Does that fit with the, the, the principles of regenerative farming? Well, in, in general, what people are, are, are encouraging is reduce, reducing inputs. Yeah? And people say, right, we're going to reduce inputs. 
I think my first point there is that they lump all agrochemicals under one banner. And we know that the concerns for human health, if you like, of fertilizers or herbicides, or if you like, insecticides, fungicides, are very different because, of course, the fungicides and the, the insecticides are chemicals that were designed to kill things, hopefully selectively. Yes. Whereas for fertilizers, you know, nutrients are really environmentally benign if they're used in the best way. Now, there's a lot of discussion in, in uh, you know, specifically on herbicides uh, about whether they have negative human health problems, particularly glyphosate. I think the jury is still out on that, but essentially glyphosate is one of the least uh, toxic compounds yeah. in terms of human health we can think of. But if you're going to ban glyphosate and you're banning tillage, so we have zero till, well, what, what do we do about weeds? I mean, um, are we going to go back to hand weeding? Mm. You know, tillage is one of the best ways of controlling weeds. So then some of these principles, minimum till and not using herbicides, are really uh, utterly in conflict with each other. And there's very, very little in the discussion on regenerative agriculture about what do we do if we do away with chemical inputs what do we do for weed control what do we do for uh, pest and disease control and i think that this is one of the biggest challenges that we face in future is is how we move to if you like less chemical intensive farming but still with the ability to control uh, insect uh, pest outbreaks and and particularly the soil-borne uh, fungal diseases which are one of the biggest problems in many agricultural systems so, so, Ken, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball in there, I suppose, is that in the Australian cropping systems, especially in the cotton production systems, one of the most uh, successful things in reducing use of pesticides and, uh, in, in that has been the use of GMOs. Yeah. Where does GMOs sit within the regenerative farming framework? Really interesting question. So I'd say a, a lot of people are, are pretty silent about it. And, and and don't talk about it. Mm. But of course, the people who are looking more at regenerative organic, then they wouldn't allow the use of, of GMOs. But I think we've got very good examples. And I mean, particularly nowadays with, uh, uh, if, if people know about CRISPR-Cas, you know, the yes. ideas that we can use gene editing, um, where you can put specific genes into crops very quickly. I think... For me, that's a, a way of using the best of biology to actually reduce the need for chemistry, to reduce the need for chemical inputs. Mm. So in my mind, I, I, I would see a strong alignment, if you like, between the movements for agroecology or regenerative agriculture and using biological diversity uh, and the ability then to do that using GMOs to promote plant resistance because that allows us to reduce the use of pesticides. So I, I guess I have a pretty pragmatic approach to it, yeah? Yeah, no, but I suppose the question I've got is that from a political perspective, though, within some of these groups, that, if, and especially as we understand in Europe, that GMOs are, and even CRISPR are not considered something that we want to talk about. Yet I'm seeing from a... I see from a production perspective some really good benefits coming out of it. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, you'll you'll have heard uh, down under that, that <laughs> the UK has left the European yes. Union, you know, Brexit. 
Now, the UK have already announced that they're going to start um, allowing, and it's under review, but it's it's more or less a, a decision, I think, that they're going to allow uh, the use of CRISPR-Cas. I saw in the that. Future. Yeah. No, interesting, exciting stuff, I think, for, for UK. I think it's exciting. I mean, you have to then question what the political uh, reason for that is. <laughs> I hope it's due to the best of science. I fear it's simply because they want to use their new position as outside the EU to show that they're free of the EU and therefore they can sort of put two fingers up to, to the EU, pardon the expression, yep. uh, in terms of, uh, of of their regulations and we're going at doing it differently. I'm, I'm afraid that there's a lot of that nationalistic uh, nonsense rather than purely a, a science uh, decision. But I think we do have to welcome that, that that decision and the fact that it does open up the debate more often. So should we move on to the ecological footprint of a farm then? You, you wanted to talk about that from a, from a regenerative well, farm, yeah. did you? Because yeah. this is really one of my other biggest concerns, particularly in, the, in, in Europe and in the, the discussion here, because there's a lot of push at, at high policy level to move to, uh, it's been announced to move towards regenerative agriculture is, is, is part of the, the new farm to fork, the new green deal of the European Union. Um, and at the same time, they're talking about 25% organic agriculture, which is actually way beyond the demand currently for organic produce. Now, what we've seen over the past uh, 40, 50 years, actually, is a gradual reduction in the area under agriculture in Europe, with more and more of the less favourable uh, agricultural lands being turned over to, uh, to nature reserve and, or, or being abandoned, if you like, in the hills. But if we're reducing production in Europe, we're not reducing our consumption. And that means that our consumption patterns globally mean that that food that we're not going to produce in Europe is going to be produced elsewhere. So in a sense, what we're doing is we're exporting our broader environmental footprint to places like, you could argue, the Amazonian rainforest or yep. causing land clearance elsewhere in the world for agriculture. Now, that could be a, an opportunity, if you like, for farmers in, in Africa, per se. But it, I think we, we can't look at one country without considering the global environmental footprint of what we're doing. And to just say across the board, we've got to reduce inputs, we've got to reduce rates of production, it, it makes no sense at all to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and in the European debates, those things are just simply not considered. Because I suppose, what, and this sort of leads on to this other thing, that I don't think farmers in Australia really – we know about but we're not taking much notice of but there seems to be this movement um these thing that the world food systems or this reinvention of the of, of the diet or but it seems to be driven by political forces that that for, at one level concerns me in that it looks like they're they, they they seem to be wanting to tell farmers how to farm based on concepts which which I question whether how much science is behind it. I think, again, I mean, I, th I think I share some of your concerns, Dave. I think particularly, of course, uh, like, like I was saying earlier, both from the company side, but also from government side, they want to, um, of course, I think they there's a genuine intention of wanting to do things better. Yep. 
they tend to respond, of course, to signals out there in the media uh, because they want to sound good. And I think politics has become very populist. I mean, and, and I think that means that the idea, if you like, of, of evidence-based policy is, is at times it's really got left behind. And we end up with these rather populist, rather dogmatic approaches and saying, you know, this is wrong, that is right, when there are many shades of grey in between. Yep. And, yeah, what we really need to do is to make sure that we engage our, our, our politicians in some of these discussions um, to make sure that they're well informed. And I must say, I've been... I've been really privileged to be able to do that a lot in the past year, actually talk here in the Netherlands very much to government about um, what what do these different things mean and how should that be shaping policy? Because I would have thought one of the concerns I have is, is again, getting back to your African situation is that I've, you sometimes read or see, or it seems to be, and I might be wrong here, Ken, is that European, European NGOs are, are dictating to African farmers how they should go about farming, which might not be based on actually what's best for the African farmer. Well, I mean, yeah, there you go. Uh, At the end of the day, the countries in Africa and their governments and their farmers should be deciding for themselves. And I mean, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with, if if you like, with having discussion and to raise new concepts and raise new ideas. But I think we've got to be careful that we're not hanging... um, all of the carrots, if you like, in, in, in terms of development aid around specific topics. And for instance, you know, for European Union funding for research in agriculture, all of that now is driven by a debate around agroecology, which didn't originate in Africa, it originated very much in Europe. So that idea of, of what we call about, you know, helicopter science or helicopter policy that you're dropping in things from the sky I think is something that we've got to be aware of and we, we've got to be wary of. We've got to be careful that we don't impose on others our particular worldviews without allowing them the time and, and you know, to, to make up mind, their minds for themselves, if you like. Well, can you explain the term agroecology? Uh, it, it's a new term to me. Yeah, sorry, I'll start using we, – we, we're straying from regenerative. But, no, no. Uh, again, <laughs> but it's all, it's all tied up in a way, isn't it, Ken? It, it is. I mean, uh, there's been a very strong movement uh, also in Europe, but particularly in Latin America for agroecology, which actually, um, in a strict definition, it means using the best of ecology in agriculture, if you like, mm. in terms of ecological principles. And again, that very quickly comes back to things like good agricultural practice. But other people interpret agroecology as being organic. It's about uh, food sovereignty, you know, being independent of the market. And and so there are, again, shades of grey, uh, uh, but some people pushing a, a rather extreme view of agroecology, others looking at, if you like, ways of adapting and relying more on biology, which is closer, if you like, to what other people would be put under this regenerative uh, agriculture banner. Where does the UN sit on this type of stuff? Oh, difficult. Um, well, if we take FAO, you know, Food Agricultural Organization, which is a, a, a United Nations uh, organization in charge of agriculture, they've come up with uh, what they call the really promoting agroecology. They've come up with a, a 10 principles document. Uh, there's another document out there from what they call the high level panel of experts, which is promoting 13 principles. 
and most of these principles again they're, they're things it's really hard to to um to reject if you like they're, they're about yep. more collaboration uh um, looking at local adaptation, things that I'd, I'd be happy to support. But one of the 13 principles from the high-level panel of experts is simply reduce inputs. And again, then that goes back to my earlier point that we sh- you know, we have to consider a starting point. Uh, in in the Netherlands, one of the biggest environmental problems we've got is is too much nitrogen in a very small area. And there are moves being taken to reduce the number of livestock. And I think that's inevitable. It has to be because we're importing so much nitrogen in feed. Yep. But again, go to some of the situations in Africa and, and the, the farms and the farmers are starved, essentially, uh, and their soils are starved because of the lack of, of nutrient inputs. So starting points again, I'm afraid. Okay, Ken, soil carbon. Um, one, one of the problems I have about that is is... Yeah, we want to build soil carbon, but some of the results that I've seen seem to defy, and, and, and I've got to be honest with you, I wasn't the best soil, when I did soils at uni, wasn't my strongest subject. But even I know that that, that soils have a, a, a limit, and there's also what we call equilibriums, depending on our systems. But some of the calls I'm seeing within regenerative farming, I find, well, stunning, to be, to be fair. Yeah. Now, and I think this is where really, again, um, where science needs to to show it, show its voice and and to to really comment and maybe to dampen a bit of the enthusiasm, because I think all of us would agree that you know soil organic matter, which is essentially then soil carbon, is a good thing. I mean, it's a, it's the fundamental basis of of what we call soil health, soil quality getting a good tilth to soil, you know, so that you, you have a good soil structure. And um, that's important for efficient use of other, other uh, nutrients, et cetera, et cetera. There are lots of positives about soil, uh, organic matter and soil carbon. But if we look at some of the claims which are made earlier for how much carbon could be locked up in the soil, there was a claim at one point by some people that um, if we were to promote regenerative agriculture, then we wouldn't have to worry about any other form of uh, carbon uh, mitigation in terms of, of climate change, that we could lock up all the carbon that we're emitting in the soil. Now, that's been debunked. I mean, people have pulled back from that. And even a lot of the people who promote regenerative agriculture there's an organization called uh, the carbon underground which has Mm. a lot of people aligned about boosting soil carbon sequestration to solve climate uh, change problems to mitigate climate change even they pull back and say well come on guys we've got to be realistic we shouldn't oversell the potential because otherwise then people uh, will lose credibility and people will walk away yep so in terms of climate change there's a great deal to be gained by nitrogen management to make sure that we have efficient use of nitrogen and we don't have nitrous oxide losses. That's one thing. Yep. And some of the claims, you know, there are claims in the States that if you spray a, a particular fungal inoculant onto soil, you can increase your carbon 50, 50 fold, 50 times. A complete nonsense. I was about you know, to say, can I get some of that? <laughs> yeah, Sorry. I mean, it's just... You know, then you think, oh, come on, guys, let's let's be real, yeah. Yeah. Your point, actually, Dave. Sorry, and yep. and you, you mentioned equilibria. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's also fundamental. 
that as you start to change to a new form of management, you might end up with a higher equilibrium carbon. If you then, you know, for instance, in in uh, tillage in in zero till systems, you might come to the point there's too much weed buildup and you need to plow, then you'll you'll lose some of that carbon again. And so we have to think that wherever you're starting from, any change of management will bring you to a new equilibrium and we won't carry on building carbon, uh, you know, in a linear fashion into the future. Yeah. So there'll be an attenuation of the amount of carbon being stored in terms of the increase each year as you move forward with a with a particular practice. Yeah, soils don't have an infinite capacity to store carbon, do they? Absolutely. We, we, they, we've got what we call a saturation potential mm. of soils. Absolutely. So, Ken, what do we do? I mean, where when we're sitting down uh, and, and looking at our, our farming systems, where do we start? Well, I think first the first point I'd like to say is, you know, let's engage, yeah? So for the people who want, you know, to do better, I think we're all aligned on that, but let's try and make it happen in a realistic way that that doesn't, if you like, put all of the uh, the burden of of uh, change on on the farmer. So there are other things we can do in the food system in terms of consumption, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think then for farming itself. I think the first thing we can do, and in our paper, we put forward five points for guidance. The first one is, well, what's the problem? <laughs> what do we need a solution for? And, and does what people are proposing as regenerative agriculture actually address that problem? Yeah. Mm, yep. And in some cases, the problem would be, if you like, um, yeah, maybe in, in Australia, the buildup of GM resistant weeds would be one. Yeah. So what yep. are we going to do about that? Um, in other places, it might be, yeah, the soils are depleted and we need to, to build soil carbon. But first of all, let's identify what the, the problem is locally. And that will actually lead us, well, what are we trying to regenerate? Yeah, you know, to say we need to regenerate implies that something is is degenerate, is, is, is not good. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I think, first of all, it's really all about problem identification. No, Ken. As I say, it's an interesting, interesting area, and, I, and I, what I like about, I suppose, what I why I'm passionate about being involved in agriculture is, is I think we're still learning so much, and there's so much that we can do, uh, and there's so many opportunities, there, especially for young people, to 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 get involved in this this discussion and 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 come up with some better solutions. Well, great. Um, you know, maybe if we we were to talk about the the grazing thing, I think you mentioned earlier uh, rotational grazing. Yeah, yeah. And and there are many farmers who are really talking out that and show can show the benefits of of rotational grazing and fencing. But some of these really intensive grazing systems that people are promoting as you know the holistic grazing, where you use yep. this, they call it mob grazing. Mm. They basically i think is a good example because if that was going to be a mechanism to help to you know regenerate uh, pasture or whatever you have to then look well is it economically and socially viable in in that context and of course to do mob grazing means using either uh, moving fencing or having you know quite small paddocks yep or you know with with some of the advances in technology you can use these gps collars around uh, the the next where basically if if the cattle stray across a boundary they get a little uh, electric signal 
which which stops them moving. Yeah, so you can actually use a GPS based grazing system, which maybe allows then to do that grazing, uh, rotational grazing remotely without having to spend a huge amount of money putting in fences everywhere. But, yeah. but, but the problem I see with that, Ken, is that I've got paper after paper sitting on my desk by CSIRO that just shows that there are no or marginal, if best, benefits from a profitability perspective, from an animal health perspective, or actually from a biodiversity perspective with regards to those intensive mob grazing. Uh, there might be some slight improvement in soil carbon, but often that can come at the... Uh, cost of, of soil compaction so again it's this dichotomy sure. between what I, I know and I, I know some farmers who will be absolutely passionate and they'll, they'll ring me up and give me yeah. a, a, a hiding for saying this but but I can't see the evidence you know in, in, in independent but my evidence. point would be then well let's let's discuss it and you know for some people and I think this is particularly on very large extensive um livestock grazing farms they they can see benefits and yep. and that's often to do with managing um sward quality yeah to make sure that you're not getting um a lot of unpalatable species coming to dominate your grassland but but it is always going to be something which has to be worked out locally yep and um i know that there's a group actually in south africa that i'm in, engaged in discussions with where they they're really saying yeah you know we see real advantages with with having a a degree of rotational grazing but not to the extreme of of this holistic mob grazing as as you say so you know again i think there are some nuggets in there of really interesting and exciting and, and could be useful for some people yeah. but we can't have this situation where we're saying in a dogmatic approach is this is where you have to do it and then trying to impose that on people because I think if you try and shove things down people's throats, they usually actually <laughs> start to regurgitate really fast. <laughs> they just, they start to get angry, and 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 tend to walk off in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. So how do we get into yeah discussion, debate, dialogue? You know, with people who see the benefits without actually trying to preach too much. That yeah. would be my point. Yeah, Ken, I, I think that's a really good point to to finish off the the podcast i've really appreciated your insights and discussion on this points and hopefully this won't be the last time that we we catch up and maybe maybe one day we can actually get you over here to australia again when we open up and we can have a beer and have a bit of more chat on the on the topic i would love to do that i have huge respect for farming farmers and particularly agricultural research in australia because i really see it as being one of the most innovative in the world and maybe just as a last comment for me, I, th I do think this whole thing of regenerative agriculture is, is here to stay, certainly for the next 10 years or so. And so if we can engage in a positive way that we can make the best of it without actually having it, you know, having a, being beaten over the head by it, yep. <laughs> then I think we're doing a good job. Yeah. Thanks. So, pleasure to talk to you. Great. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening to this week's Marcus Ag Talk podcast. Please, any feedback on the series would be greatly appreciated. You can either leave a message on this site or email me at cornish at marcusoldham.vic.edu.au. Stay tuned to next week's podcast as we continue to explore farm management from an Australian perspective.